Given the nature and goals of this show, as one that seeks to explore some of the most controversial issues in our society, it's unavoidable that from time to time we'll be dealing with some pretty sensitive topics. And while we're committed to having those difficult discussions, because we believe that they're absolutely vital to helping contribute to a better informed and more thoughtful public, we want to make sure that we do it in a responsible way. So we want to let our listeners know right up front that this will be one of those episodes. Today we'll be addressing the right to die, and that is going to include conversations that some of you might rather avoid. We'll be talking about euthanasia, suicide, and the physical and psychological conditions that can contribute to those sorts of actions being contemplated. We also want to say that although we'll be forwarding arguments for why we think governments might want to pass legislation allowing their citizens this right, we certainly don't want anyone listening to think that we are encouraging them to carry out any of these sorts of actions. If, if this might pertain to you, please do yourself and the people around you a favor and tell someone how you're feeling. And if you don't think that you have anyone who you can tell, we wanted to take a second to share um, right up front the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, if, if you need help and, and you don't know anybody around you who you think can provide that help, please do call 1-800-273-8255. Uh, hopefully this episode can serve to bring some attention to this issue and the people who are dealing with it. And help spark conversations that can be really difficult to have and all of us probably avoid more than we should. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. As we begin this episode on the right to die, I just want to say that there are some topics that no matter how much you study them, how many articles you read, you can't truly develop a full understanding of the issue and what it means if you haven't personally experienced it yourself. So Kelly and I didn't feel as though we could do this episode justice without having someone join us who, unfortunately, or you know, perhaps fortunately, which we'll talk about, gone through this themselves. And I know that it can be personal and emotional, but I'm hoping that the discussion we have will help bring a level of understanding to our listeners. So I'd like to thank not just a good friend of the podcast, but a good friend of my own, John Patrick, for joining us today and just being willing to share his experiences with us. This is a topic that I, I actually care a lot about. Uh, there have been several members of my family who uh, basically just suffered to death. And that seemed bad. As it turns out, dying is an ugly business. <laughs> we'll we'll definitely get into that. And, uh, you know, again, John, thanks for coming by and sharing your thoughts. And also we are joined, um, as always, by Kelly up in Oregon, who we'll talk about a lot in this episode. We'll talk about Oregon a lot, not about me. <laughs> and actually, why don't we go ahead and start there? Uh, Kelly, do you want to talk to us a little bit about the U.S. legislation in regards to the right to die and maybe specifically um, the policies that are in place in Oregon? 
So in the United States, this is decided on a state-by-state basis with 11 jurisdictions having this sort of law, the most commonly referenced case study being Oregon's Death with Dignity Act, which was passed in the mid-90s. This allows Oregonians who are 18 or older uh, diagnosed with a terminal illness that will lead to death within six months to end their lives through the voluntary self-administration of a lethal dose of medication expressly prescribed by a physician for this purpose. And I think one thing that's interesting to note here, and we're going to make a distinction later on, is that this prescribing is considered assisted suicide. This is not euthanasia. In euthanasia, the medication is actually administered by the physician, not just prescribed. So euthanasia is illegal across the United States. It is legal in um, some European countries like the Netherlands, which we'll discuss in a second. But even with the case of assisted suicide, I'd imagine that there would be a litany of safeguards in place for this. Kelly, do you want to talk about some of the safeguards that exist with Oregon's Death with Dignity Act? Yeah, absolutely. So in Oregon's case, two physicians must confirm the patient's residency, diagnosis, prognosis, mental competence, and the voluntary nature of the request. There are two waiting periods, the first between the oral request and the second between receiving and filling the prescription. Those are required waiting periods for this process. Uh, So that's the Oregon law. And then the other place that I think is is most well-cited as far as, you know, right to life legislation goes is the Netherlands. And the Netherlands has the Termination of Life on Request and Assisted Suicide Act, which was passed in 2002, that's broadly based on the law in Oregon. But I do think that there's a couple of key distinctions to note. Uh, First of all, the death must be carried out in a medically appropriate fashion by the doctor or patient and the doctor must be present. So this is euthanasia, as opposed to the law in Oregon that is explicitly not euthanasia, but rather assisted suicide, where, again, the doctor provides the medication, but then is not there and does not administer it. So I think that's one important distinction. Another distinction is that in the Netherlands, the patient's suffering has to be unbearable with no prospect of improvement, but that importantly eliminates the six months to live stipulation in most of the legislation that exists in the United States. And then the third important thing to note is that the patient has to be at least 12 years old. Uh, So patients between 12 and 16 years of age require the consent of their parents, uh, as opposed to the Oregon law and the laws in most of the United States where the patient has to be 18 years or older. It sounds like in the Netherlands, there's a much more liberal application of this, especially considering the, the the idea of children being eligible for it. So that's kind of wild to me that it's allowing this for people who legally cannot consent to anything yet. I don't know how I feel about handing over parents the that sort of power. So those are two applications of this concept into law around the world. But again, I think you know, the idea that I started the episode with was it's it's easy to read these words. It's easy to listen to these words, but I don't think that they really mean much in, until you've either been in or at least been exposed to, to a situation where this has happened. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why um, we asked John Patrick to join us today. And, and I don't know if it, at this point, John, you'd be willing to kind of talk to everybody about, you know, some of the things that you've gone through, the experiences that you've had with this particular issue, your family's had. Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to. So um, I guess I'll, I'll start in the way back machine and then might work my way up to the most recent. 
just because I think it will show different approaches to how, when there was no death with dignity law in California, uh, to uh, when there is one. Uh, but anyway, like back in 2019, uh, I was uh, a young lad of uh, all of 18 years old, and my dad had been sick for uh, quite some time. He, he sort of got sick when I was 16, 17 years old, had pulmonary conditions. It was a fairly rare condition at the time. To treat it, he had to have a uh, like a stint put into his heart, and there was this tube that would come out of his chest and into that tube all day long would pump this medication, this liquid medication called Flolan. Uh, my mother and I had to mix it and, and, and put it into his pump and we had to mix it just right. If we didn't mix it right, he'd die. If we got an air bubble in it, he'd die. Uh, it was, yeah, it, this was a stressful time to be alive. Um, and uh, just huge shout out to the American healthcare system for completely sucking. Like, really, your idea of healthcare in this country is to take a minor and teach a minor how to mix medicine and pump it directly into his father's chest in a way where he might kill his own father. Thanks, America. Well done. Thanks for the lifetime of trauma. Really appreciate it. Uh, so there's that aspect to it. But this ultimately comes to a head with him getting sort of sicker and sicker and sicker. And he ends up in the hospital. He's retaining water. They have to come and they drain him on a daily basis because he can't process water through his system. The Flolan is a, a drug that uh, is really hard on your kidneys and liver. And this was no good for him. And uh, basically, I just watched this man uh, wither away and suffer to death in just excruciating pain. And it's me and my mother and my grandfather and my grandmother in the hospital on shifts and just watching this man who had been a large, somewhat boisterous guy, uh, just wither away and suffer away into nothing over the course of uh, years and months. And that was like the best you could hope for is at the time it was, uh, well, we'll try to keep him doped up on morphine so that he's as comfortable as possible. What, what was your, I mean, I, I know you were younger then, but what was your father's take on this? Was he, you know, lucid for most of this experience? Was he able to express himself? I mean, is that something that he probably tried to shield from you given your age at the time? Yeah. Up until the end, he was pretty uh, cagey about what he was really thinking and feeling. My dad was sort of like, the best way to conceive of my father is that if you've ever seen the show, The Wonder Years, the dad on The Wonder Years, that was my father. Like, not to be hokey, but now as an adult man, when I miss my father, sometimes I pop on The Wonder Years and remember what it was like to have that father. Mm. Uh, like, it's like, it's it's way too close to real. Like, just, mm -hmm. you know, works work. Don't say much. Occasionally dispenses an invaluable piece of advice for, like, how to get on in the world, but not, not a ton of mushy, touchy-feely. So it was like, you know, when you're sitting in the hospital and this man who has never really been a big emotionally open man is just now openly saying things like, well, I just wish this would be over already. Uh, it's a pretty, and like, you know, I'm like a kid, you know, <laughs> so it's like, it's a pretty gnarly thing 
to experience. Wow. I mean, that sounds really rough. I mean, to put it lightly for, um, for an 18 year old, especially I, I, even, even for a 30, 40 year old, I, that, that can't be easy. So, you know, so your dad is there asking for this to be ended. What ended up happening? I mean, how did, how did the end eventually come about? Ultimately he suffered to death. And one day I, uh, I had driven home after spending all day in the hospital, went to bed, woke up in the morning. Um, my cell phone was ringing. We had cell phones by then. Uh, I answer it. And my mom's like, oh, you better get down here. He's dead. And, uh, and he ultimately got transferred to a hospice a couple days before he died. And, and they just kept him on morphine until he was dead. And did, did you feel any sort of like regret or maybe um, resentment over the fact that you didn't get to be there at the actual time of the passing that, you know, you, you heard about it through text or a phone call? No, I, I think at that time I was, uh, I think at that time I was afraid of it uh, more than anything. Like I, I didn't want to be there really. I think if I had wanted to be there, I probably would have just stayed. Mostly, I remember in those days wanting to avoid it, but I think that was a function of immaturity. Um, I've never wanted to be there, but there have been times it was like, recently my grandmother passed away, and for me it was like, oh, well, I don't know if I wanted to be there, but I felt a duty to be there. Mm -hmm. And I wanted, I definitely wanted to uphold that duty mm -hmm. uh, to her. And, you know, you and I have talked, like, like I mentioned, you know, I, I know every show always is best friends with their guests, but you know, for people listening, <laughs> yeah. you know, John, John and I are actually um, quite, quite close, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, in life. And so, you know, I remember that you had actually texted me when your grandma had passed away describing, you know, that moment and, and you being there with her, you know, maybe uh, dude, you could take a second to like compare the two experiences or. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think this is where you have like the, the, the starkest difference. Um, I will say this, for anyone who has a family member who is passing or a loved one, someone that you're close to, uh, if you can be there when they die, like literally in the room, in the moment, when they die, and you can spend like the lead up to that with them, if you have that opportunity, take that opportunity. Uh, I, this, I know this is going to sound absolutely bonkers for people who haven't been through it, but and I don't know how I can make people understand this, but the absolute best day of my life uh, was the day my grandmother died because uh, you can't share something more intimate with that than that with, with a person other than maybe being in the room when someone is born. It's the only thing that I can think of that's on par with uh, with what I experienced in my grandmother passing. So uh, my grandmother passed earlier this year and California does have a death with dignity law in place right now. That law has actually recently been amended to change the waiting period. Uh, I think uh, basically the way that it went down, it was, it was the beginning of May. My grandmother, uh, she fell and busted her hip, had to go to the hospital went in to get emergency surgery on her hip. Uh, while she was in surgery, she aspirated, ended up contracting pneumonia, 
And like it is with all elderly people, it's the pneumonia is what got her. Went to the hospital, got pneumonia. Uh, after uh, well, maybe a week and a half of fighting the pneumonia, she turned to me and she's like, I've had a long life. I've lived through things that would have killed other people. Um, and I've, I've done fighting. And I want you to get the nurse and have them uh, put to have them put me to sleep. So I tried to invoke the death with dignity law on her behalf. And they were like, oh, she doesn't have that long. You know, the, the death with dignity law takes 15 days. We expect that she's going to pass within the next three to four. And I was like, okay, so we know this person's going to die. Like, let's just start there. We know that this person's going to die. And right now they're lucid. They're not on a bunch of morphine. They're not, you know, nothing, nothing crazy has happened yet. They've been made comfortable, but it hasn't been dying mode. She was in that space where she was like, am I going to keep fighting or am I going to give up? And she chose to give up. And the response to her choosing to give up wasn't, okay, how do you want to do this? It was, okay, this is how it's going to happen to you. And that seems not ideal to me. I would rather have more control than less control. Uh, but that's that's maybe just me. Um, so the nurse had to come in and confirm that my grandmother was ready to be taken off of the life support systems that were trying to give her a chance to overcome the pneumonia. And when the nurse came in and asked, my, my grandmother looked this woman straight in the eye and said, let's get this ball rolling. And she was just committed at that point. And so they took her off the machines and the morphine began. And then they were transferring her uh, to at-home hospice care because I was not interested in having her die in the hospital. Uh, if you've never had someone transfer into in-home hospice care, there's a lot of like wink, wink, nudge, nudge that goes on when they give you the drugs to keep your loved ones sedated. Like they're sort of like, well, you will not be liable if you accidentally overdose this person because you are just a non-medical, you, you have no medical training and you're just doing the best you can with the information that you've been given. So, you know, what we're telling you to do is to give her this much, this often. And if it seems like she needs more, go ahead and give her more which is really the whole time that I'm receiving this information is like, I'm pretty sure you're telling me that it's okay to kill my grandma. But what that does is it, it puts you in a position where you have no guidance at all about the right steps to take in order to do it safely so that they're not harmed by the process. So you kind of have to like start poking around in the internet to see what other people have done. And, uh, so my grandmother came home, we got her set up in her house. And the first night I was like, well, I want to give her a night at home. We'll put on, she loved to watch Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. We put on episodes of Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune and like let those play for a while. And I just spent like that, those last two days just telling her uh, how much, uh, how much I loved her and how much she meant to me and all the ways in which she had improved my life. And I let her have one more night uh, to get through. I don't know why, just because honest to God, I was, I was afraid. Like, I was like, I, I, I didn't really feel like I knew how to do it and that I would do it safe. 
And, uh, and so I spent that night sort of researching and trying to figure it out. And uh, the next morning I went down to be with her after I'd slept and I told her, and at this point, my grandmother is just kind of like, um, at this point, she's kind of like, not really, I, I think she can hear me. And I think she can hear what's going on around her, but she's not very responsive. Like she's not really interacting with the world. She's probably gathering information passively, whatever's going, I mean, she's also doped out of her mind, right? Like we've got this woman on a ton of morphine. Um, but I tell her, I was like, okay, tonight's the night. This is, I'm going to do it for you. And within the hour, uh, she gave up and died. And, uh, I was like, you could hear her breathing change. And I was, I was, I was laying on her couch and I had music on in the background. And I think it was Ashokan Farewell was playing. And I was texting somebody while I just laid there listening to music and hanging out with her. And then all of a sudden I realized I couldn't hear her breathing anymore or I could hear her breathing before. And I looked up and she was like jaundiced and mottled and I knew she was gone. And in that moment, a thing happened to me like I had never experienced before in my life. And it was a uh, an unparalleled sense of gratitude. And I did not expect to feel this way. Uh, you know, I don't think you wake up in the morning and think, oh, someone's going to die. It's going to be like this amazing feeling. But it ended up being this really incredible and amazing feeling. I think in part because I didn't have to kill her. Uh, you know, like there was this also this incredible sense of relief that the thing that I didn't want to do, I wasn't going to have to do. So I imagine I'm not alone in thinking this, but we genuinely appreciate these stories that you've pr provided for us today, John. And we see from these stories that have been provided about your experiences, that there are compelling reasons that people argue in favor of the right to die. But we also take into consideration that there are many concerns that people have about this type of thing being legalized in places and the potential dangers that could come with it. So I think the logical order that we should go in in reviewing these laws and practices and the opinions that are held about them are first to talk about the things like we just heard about with your experiences with terminal illness and talk about the cases where it seems probably a little more clear cut about what the right decisions might be. And then moving into some of the more nuanced discussions when it comes to issues of psychological disorders or mental illness and the more complicated debate about how to determine if this is the right action for people in these instances. Yeah, I, I, I think that Definitely the discussion around terminally ill patients is probably the most salient. This was going to be the majority of individuals who would consider taking advantage of a law like this. You know, hearing stories like that certainly make a compelling case for why we need, you know, these death with dignity laws to be expanded. But at the same time, I'm I'm worried because everything that you bring up, John, about the the burdens that these situations put on the family and some of the interactions that you have with the medical institution um, 
you know, that they could lead to to reasons for why these sorts of laws could be abused. Um, you know, I was reading about this a little bit before and, and in the United Kingdom, they were debating these same types of laws and they had a they had a um, House of Lords sounds very important select committee on medical ethics. And what they concluded was that, you know, it's virtually impossible to ensure that all acts of euthanasia were truly voluntary. And they said that any liberalization of the law under the United Kingdom could be abused. Um, you know, they're concerned that vulnerable people like the elderly, the lonely, the sick, or the distressed would feel pressure, whether it's real or imagined, to request an early death. And while, you know, obviously in your situation, yourself and the rest of your family um, were willing to do anything, um, you know, for your father and your grandmother, you know, before they win, I'm not sure that that's always going to be the case. Do you think that, you know, individuals, the, the elderly individual on the verge of death in this situation, like oftentimes they have a maybe a skewed view of reality? right? They, they see the burden that they're placing on their families or their friends. Do you guys think that, you know, in that situation, the person might be thinking that they're doing their family a favor and actually they're, they're just, they're breaking their heart. There's a book called the four tendencies and um, there are different personality types that are discussed in it. And one of those that I identify with a lot makes me potentially fear that I could become the kind of person who perceives the pressure of stopping a burden. And that's the obliger personality type where you're constantly meeting others' expectations, whether real or projected rather than your own expectations. So there could be the perceived expectation from your family, even though they say, oh no, we, we're here to, we're here to support you. We don't want you to die, et cetera, et cetera. They could be thinking, well, they're just saying that because they have to, but I know that I'm a burden. It is costing a lot of money for my medical care. So in the instance where people make up their mind that they are a burden, whether or not their family expressly tells them to, I don't know how you persuade them that they're not a burden. I think, I think that that's a story that's, that's commonplace for, I guess, I don't know what else to call it, but quote unquote, regular suicide as well, where say you have a, a father that, you know, believes in very traditional gender roles. He's the breadwinner for the family. And then he ends up losing his job and he feels as though he can't provide for his family anymore. And because of that, he's failed them. And I, I think that quite often, more often than, than we'd like, that can lead toward, you know, traditional suicide. So certainly that same mindset could pressure people. If people could pressure themselves into making the, the quote, I, I suppose, wrong decision in this scenario. So it's an understandable position that legislatures and doctors even would be concerned about whether or not a patient was truly coming to this decision of their own free will, or if there was an actual pressure involved, either from external forces or internal forces. But it's very likely that with the psychological screening that goes into these cases, that those are the sorts of risks that can probably be minimized quite a bit. Although I don't think it's fair to say that they can be eliminated, but in that regard, we have to kind of look at what's the best decision for the most amount of people, more of a utilitarian framework, and just accept that there may be a few instances where it doesn't go as it should, but is that a good enough reason to just do, not allow people to do it altogether? Yeah, but, but what I'm scared about is I, I don't 
think that it would be a few cases. So in the instance of someone who's terminally ill, this is something that that lasts decades sometime. And over the course of decades, that sort of feeling of being a burden is something that has to just build and build. And at a certain point, I, I think anybody would think to themselves, maybe it would be better for my family if I wasn't around anymore. And, and that could be happening at the same time that the family is thinking we are cherishing every second that we have, and we want this to last as long as it possibly can, but it can be hard to convince an individual in this instance that that's the case. So it's entirely possible that it's a completely legitimate reason to pursue this. If you do feel like you're a burden on your family, I think that we're kind of projecting this idea that that's not a valid reason and it may be the most important thing to a person to be able to retain some agency over their life and to not impose a burden upon their family. So I, I don't know that this is necessarily the reason we shouldn't allow this type of thing. And I also think that when people are experiencing terminal illness, there are plenty of resources available to them and to their families to go through the psychological work towards the acceptance of one's mortality and being able to have this sort of counseling with the family members to get some closure and things like that. So I really don't think that this is as big of a problem as you're concerned it might be. What what does abuse really look like? I mean, obviously, any any one person who ends their life and maybe didn't want to, that's one too many. You know, like if you're talking about that person who felt who felt the pressure of being a burden and really didn't want to end their life, but felt that it was the most responsible decision, despite not wanting to end their life. Uh, you certainly don't want that situation to occur. Um, but short of that, I don't know. It would just be really hard for me. It's really hard for me to envision someone wanting to end their life and carrying it out uh, with proper guidance and help uh, from knowledgeable people. It's really hard for me to conceive of, of that becoming abusive. I mean, I guess if, I guess the only way that that actually becomes abusive, there's really only one way that that becomes abusive. And that's when there is a profit motive for people to encourage people to end their life. So like if a doctor is making a bunch of money off of this kind of care and they are actively encouraging people who otherwise maybe really need a different course of treatment for a while to carry through to completion their decision at a time when it is otherwise inappropriate to, like that to me is a real problem, but that's a problem of capitalism and perverse profit incentives, right? Well, and, and so, so since we're talking about it in Oregon, some people suggest that their law has led to patients, quote unquote, doctor shopping for willing practitioners, you know, using doctors who have minimal knowledge of their past. So in 2008, for example, 50% of patients requesting suicide were assisted to die by a doctor who had been their physician for eight weeks or less. Yeah. So to me, this is, this is a perfect case where what you need is guardrails that, uh, create a situation in which doctors who aren't intimately familiar with your situation 
need to become intimately familiar with your situation prior to, you know, executing this kind of care, unless you are clearly uh, terminally ill and suffering to death, right? Like there, there needs to be something that checks back against the perverse incentives that capitalism offers us. So with that example, Josh, of the doctor shopping in Oregon, do we have any evidence that the doctors are providing this service because they have some sort of incentive to do so? Or is it more that I am a terminally ill patient, my primary care physician will not assist me with this. I need to find a sympathetic doctor who goes through my medical history, which will be provided when I transfer care to them. And then even though it's only been a short period of time, they determine that this is a valid case. Do we know any of the relationship dynamics for those briefly hired doctors? You know, we don't, but that to me, that just makes it seem oddly political, right? Like I, if I find a medical practitioner who shares my views and and they'll say it's okay. And if I find one who does not share my views, they'll deny this to me um, is, you know, it's supposed to be in places a guardrail, but is it a guardrail anymore? If you can just find somebody that agrees with you. So it's not just, I'm looking for somebody to agree with me for political reasons. It's I'm looking for someone to validate me and actually take an active interest in what I want rather than being prescriptive. And in probably a lot of these cases, I would assume that's the actual dynamic. I mean, but we don't know for sure. But again, that's, that's in the, in this case, you know, you want them to agree with you ending your own life. So I think it's maybe unique from those other cases where you're asking for care to keep yourself alive, to treat yourself, to improve your health. And in this case, you're looking for somebody that will agree to, in, in a in a physical sense, at least harm you. Well, then we have to ask the question about is a quality of life that is bad better than no quality of life when you end your life? I think that's the real question that people have to ask themselves for this entire discussion. So I understand that the traditional interpretation of the Hippocratic Oath, the first do no harm, really talks about a doctor basically not hurting or killing their patient. But I think we can expand what harm means when we're looking at this case, because denying someone care that would allow them to end their suffering, I think actually qualifies as a kind of harm that a physician would be doing to a patient. But you, but you're using the word care to, okay, here's, here's the issue is if you describe exactly what is happening in this scenario, you are saying that in order to uphold the Hippocratic Oath, a doctor has to kill their patient. Doesn't that seem backwards? I think it's only backwards if you don't accept that this is a right that a person gets to make for themselves, that it actually does something to ease their pain and suffering, and that it is best upheld when a doctor assists a patient to do it so that they're doing it safely and can guardrail for all of those things we've been talking about that we hope that there are guardrails for. But this is not something, the, the problem, this is not something you can run a test for. Quality of life is not something that can be measured objectively. So this goes back to something that we were talking about earlier with doctor shopping, which is you will search until you find a doctor that agrees with you. So what if you go through seven or eight doctors that don't agree with you? 
and then you find one that does and just looks at quality of life in a different way is should one doctor be able to override the opinions of seven or eight doctors? But what reason would the doctor have to override the opinions of seven or eight other doctors? They take into account the medical history of the patient and the records from other physicians. I just don't see the likelihood that there is like one doctor who is so gung-ho about assisted suicide that they're going to contradict all of the other people in their field in order to make sure that this happens. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I, I think that's totally reasonable because again, this is not a scientific decision. This is not a medical decision. Like the value of life is a, is a spiritual or a philosophical or a religious decision. And you can have one doctor that has a different worldview from the rest. So even if they agree with the rest on the science, the way that they weigh that and the way that they value that in terms of what is this person's quality of life and therefore what action should be taken or not taken because of that, I could totally see a 10% of doctors who would disagree with the rest and carry out. And then everybody who wants that procedure done knows if we go to these 10% of the doctors, we're going to get this done. Even if that's true, again, I have to ask, what is the harm when that happens? Mm -hmm. I guess the harm is lesser in the cases of terminal illness, but in cases of psychological disorder, I think that the harm can be really severe there. So we have focused quite a bit on terminal illness and more of like the American healthcare system by looking at the organ law in particular, but I think it would be helpful to look outside of our borders. So why don't we look at some of the laws that exist in places like Europe and other parts of the world where there's a bit of a different way that they've applied these premises. Mm -hmm. We mentioned earlier the Netherlands, and to specify the part of their legislation that I find the most interesting that leads us into the next part of this conversation, the, they say that a person is eligible for euthanasia if the patient's suffering is, quote, unbearable with no prospect of improvement. And what's interesting about this is it doesn't just apply to physical conditions, um, and definitely doesn't just apply to terminally ill physical conditions. It also applies to psychological conditions. In fact, in the Netherlands and Belgium, some of the conditions that people have been euthanized for include depression, autism, anorexia, blindness, and personality disorders. How do we feel about... It? It's one conversation to have. Do we allow an individual who is whose death is imminent within six months, do we allow them to take their lives early? I think it's a totally different conversation to have of do we allow an individual to take their life when they have potentially decades left to live? So I think that the same sort of conversation can be applicable in this scenario as well, because it all centers around the quality of life. Even if the issue at hand is not a physical terminal illness, the fact that there are chronic painful illnesses that people experience and major psychological issues that can really adversely affect the quality of life for people may be enough of a justification for people to have some agency over their end of life decision-making. One of the things that I think is most interesting about this distinction, or, or I suppose this expansion to psychological disorders is 
in every law across the board, especially the ones that we talked about in the United States, one of the key factors that doctors have to determine is the rationality of the patient. They need to ensure that this person is making an informed choice, they're consistent with requests for that choice, um, and they're in a stable enough state emotionally that they can make a permanent decision like this. But when you expand this to include individuals with psychological disorders, the that faculty is literally the thing being attacked. Like, is it possible for somebody with some of these conditions to make a decision like this? Right. And in the instance of the Netherlands and Belgium, where we see these types of laws being available to people who are experiencing these issues, we're seeing that this is increasingly happening for people who determine this is the right choice for them, an increase of about 15% every year. This could point to the fact that people are either accessing agency over their end-of-life decision-making, or it could point to people who are dying unnecessarily because this law is too easy to use to justify their end-of-life decision-making. Gosh, yeah, it makes it really hard to weigh out how we feel about this and and its effects. Like you said, does it does it mean that people who shouldn't be taking advantage of it are, or was there an entire population of people who were being forced to stay in an existence that they found unbearable and just weren't provided a way out. And now we are providing them a way out, right? Is this, is this cruel or is it humane? One example that normally we want to try and use examples for clarity's sake, but in this particular instance, I think the the majority of examples just add to the confusion and add to the question. So in one example, there was an, a healthy, otherwise healthy, I suppose, Dutch woman, and she was euthanized 12 months after her husband's death for, quote, prolonged grief disorder. And that's a diagnosis that's listed in the International Classification of Diseases, but not in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. The, the standard used by psychiatrists and psychologists around the world. And to me, I'm not trying to belittle this in any way, but if if your spouse passes away, I don't think it's uncommon that you're going to be sad. Or, you know, you're going to be depressed for a year. And to take this action 12 months after that death, it just seems, uh, it seems rushed. It seems final. Uh, irreversible. And it's hard to believe that given more time, things wouldn't have improved. Do you think it's possible though, that some people experience such devastation after something so fundamentally awful in their lives that they could potentially never improve? I guess that's the challenge too, is on, on one path, we we end their life, help them end their life, and it's finished. And if they were never going to improve, then they've avoided that unbearable outcome. They've avoided years of suffering. But there's the other possibility, which was that they could have gotten better. They could have married again. They could have 
you know, rekindled friendships. They could have, they could have lived a, a long and full life and we'll never know if that would have been the case. I guess that's what makes this so difficult, right? Is we don't have the, a way of knowing whether or not we made the right decision. I agree that a year seems like a really short period of time to assess how long a person is going to be grieving and if they're ever going to get better. A year is really a very short period of time in a person's life. But if we're going to ask that person wait around for five years, 10 years for some glimmer of hope and they never get better, that almost seems like torture to put them through that and make them endure additional time that they're in this great amount of pain. But again, we can't know that that's actually going to happen. We can only just make the best possible guess that it could happen. Mm -hmm. And I guess the other possibility, and I want to point to what I would imagine would be the most common psychological condition that would be applicable to this right to die legislation. And that would, that would most likely be depression. I mean, just how intimately it's tied to thoughts of, of potential suicide and depression oftentimes gets worse, gets better. There's periods of time that almost seem unbearable. And then, you know, large swaths of life that are amazing. And, you know, realizing that a lot of these conditions are incurable, but definitely treatable. Does it seem like we're giving up on treatment to just say, will allow you out when you're in one of the rough patches? I do think that there's like a significant difference between someone who is clearly terminally ill and on their way out in a very quick turnaround time and someone who is has hit a rough patch. But I think that's why those guardrails exist. Um, you know, it might be reasonable to place a longer time frame for someone who is contemplating ending their life, but doesn't have any terminal illness. They just have a condition that is difficult to live with. I think that's a, a really good time for people to sit down with a their medical doctor, their psychiatric doctor, and a psychologist, and also friends and family members, and have candid, open discussions about what their death would mean and why it would be worth pursuing and why it would be not worth pursuing. But after some reasonable amount of time, and I don't know what exactly that amount of time is, that is something that I think would be better left to medical professionals uh, to then make a determination about how to proceed. I think that's the same sort of analysis that goes into the grief disorder is that there is so much that is unknown about the future. But I think with depression, hopefully they are giving it more than a year before they go down this potential path, because there are so many different ways that depression can be treated. And even trying new medications, you don't just take Prozac for three days and determine if that makes you feel better. You have to take it for a pretty long period of time. And if you're going to stop taking it to try something else, you have to taper off and then slowly start another one. So if somebody's gone through 10 years or so of treatment for depression and they just aren't getting better regardless of what's happening, that might be reason to say there's not really a good chance that things are going to look up. So I guess it depends on the treatment plan, the time spent on the treatment plan, 
and, and I can't say for certain that it's the right decision, but I can understand why it can seem like the right decision. Yeah, I can, I can definitely sympathize in it. It seems like physical pain should be a prerequisite to make a decision like this, but I know personally, I think everybody knows that there are, there are definitely times in anybody's life where the psychological pain that you might feel from anything, you know, ranging from a, a breakup to the death of a loved one to, you know, any number of traumatic incidences that can take place, that psychological pain is worse than any physical pain you might experience. So, uh, you know, I definitely can see an argument for why, even if we can't see the effects of it, right? There's no blood, there's no broken bone. You can't take an X-ray of what's happening inside of your brain. That that would be that that those kind of conditions would make life unbearable. I just hope that people who are in these situations genuinely have really good health care and psychological services around them so that this definitely is a last resort if it's even considered at all. Because I do think that in the majority of cases where people are experiencing psychological trauma, there are ways that life can become tolerable and possibly even good. And I know that's not the case for everyone, but I think that if you have good people in your corner, there are good odds that it can be something treatable, manageable, and it won't be perfect, but it, it might be worth sticking around. So I think throughout the episode, you know, we've talked about terminally ill patients with physical conditions leading to their imminent death. And is it fair to force them to artificially prolong their life when it doesn't necessarily have to be? We've talked about psychological conditions. And and I think in in both of those cases, there's examples where, uh, take John Patrick's, for example, you know, like obviously John, the, the situations that you were in uh, are pretty clear cut. Um, you know, your, your father, your grandmother should not be forced um, to just exist in pain needlessly for months. Um, so there's, there's that side of things, but then also on the other side, there's obviously cases where this can be taken advantage of, whether it's real or imagined pressure from families pushing a patient to make a decision that they don't want to make or individuals who are succumbing to a psychological condition that's that's temporary and extreme, but the odds are that they, they get over it and they're able to live a healthy life afterwards. But the challenge is in the gray area. The challenge is what do we do when we're not sure, when when it's not so obvious? And I want to ask both of you just what do you think a government has a responsibility to, to do in terms of the messages that it sends by passing or rejecting certain laws? Um, do you, What do you think a government says when it says we are okay with individuals ending their lives or... Alternatively, what does a government say when it says, hey, life is sacred, period, and whatever the quality that you've assigned to it, you need to continue, you need to maintain it? 
When I hear about a law like this that allows people to choose to end their own life, I personally view it as an acknowledgement of the agency I have over my own life and my body and my decisions when it pertains to my health care. But I do think that there are probably people who view this sort of law as the government endorsing the idea that suicide in and of itself is a legitimate choice without maybe paying much attention to the nuances of when and why. And that could be dangerous um, for some people who may be on the edge and thinking about making some potentially harmful decisions and hearing about this type of law could maybe maybe damage them in a way that they weren't expecting and maybe drive a drive an irrational choice. Yeah, wow. That to me that seems like the the worst case scenario where you have somebody who would not have considered suicide as an option before but after being exposed to it by these external influences, whether it's the government or it's society at large, end up deciding that that's the best course of action that they can take. And it's it's really hard to think that there will be people out there who complete suicide and then, I know this is impossible, but if they were given the opportunity to look back at that choice that they made, you know, in a year from now or, or two years from now, and they would regret taking that course of action. But as we all know, and I, one of the things that's at the core of the challenge that this topic presents us is this decision is irreversible and, and it's impossible for us to look back at it like that and decide, was it the right decision or, or do we regret it? The worst case scenario is, is that you've thought about it a lot but have never had conversations with people in a position to support you and you carry it out on your own in your basement with a gun because the law doesn't allow for you to have safe and responsible ways to end your life. Because the other thing that you got to think about here is that people who really want to end their life, they're going to try to figure out a way to do it. So you talk about these people who like tried to end their life and then came to regret that they had ever even tried to commit suicide. There's other people who just keep trying to commit suicide over and over until it works. Uh, and so, uh, you know, that exists as well. And so, like, I think that the at the end of the day, what you really want to do is you want to have guardrails and procedures so that no one has to accidentally find a body so that people can. And you want to normalize talking about death and depression and suicidal ideation. You absolutely want to normalize talking about these things because when you can't talk about these things, there's no way that people in your life can go, hey, I don't want you to die, right? Like that, like the most important thing you can do if you're thinking about committing suicide right now is to tell someone you love and see how they can support you and start normalizing this discussion about depression. Tell someone you trust, tell someone you love, tell a psychologist, tell a psychiatrist, tell a medical doctor that you have suicidal ideation and you're not sure what to do about it. And that can open a conversation that might turn around your whole point of view and get you to want to stay. Or you might get to a point where you realize, oh my God, this thing that I'm living with, I'm not just depressed about something that's fleeting, 
I'm depressed about something that is debilitating and is an incredible burden to have to live with. And I don't think I can live with that burden for another 40 years, even if it is manageable. For me, that's one of the main arguments for these kind of laws is there's people out there who are are thinking about ending their lives and they're because they know that this sort of thing is illegal wherever they live, they're trying desperately to avoid putting that kind of pressure on their family or avoiding legal ramifications for their family. And then because of that, they end up just committing suicide on their own, dying alone, and, and being discovered as a surprise by their family. One of the big advocates for laws like this is um, Patrick Stewart. And he tells a story of his friend's wife who his his friend went out on a walk with their two dogs and came back home to to find that his wife had put a bag over her head and suffocated herself to death and you know he tells this story and she died alone without her husband without her dogs the husband comes back from a walk and and that's how he discovers and i don't know what kind of conversations they'd had with each other like what John Patrick is, was just discussing. I don't know if they've had these talks or not, but I mean, this is just a horrible scenario all around. And it's not rare. There's a book called Final Exit by Derek Humphrey, and it is actually a New York Times number one bestseller. And it is The Practicalities of Self-Deliverance and Assisted Suicide for the Dying. It is literally a how-to book on how you can end your life painlessly, um, because there's places where the medical establishment won't do it for you. The government won't allow you to do it. And this is a best-selling book on, on the New York Times. Right. I think that we have to acknowledge that people are going to be making these decisions regardless of the legality of that choice in their country and the ability to access medical care that assists them with making that choice. So I think that a government saying we're going to bring this under a legal framework is an acknowledgement that it's going to happen regardless, but at least with the medical system involved and laws protecting the medical system involved, they have some oversight and some control that they don't have if they just have a blanket ban. Yeah. And that's definitely an, an, an argument to legalize this sorts of actions. We, we talked earlier about when people have to take this into their own hands, how horrible of a scenario that can be. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe the fact that they do it regardless of the law is definitely not an argument for why the law should tell them not to. Ah, man, this is a, this is a rough one. Some of the debates we have, I'm, I have opinions on and some of the debates we have, I don't know the answer, but I'm comfortable not knowing the answer. This one is rough because. I feel, you know, the, the stakes are so high if we make the wrong decision, but, and we will, we'll never know if we're making the right decision or not. We can never go back and, and explore the alternative. We can never explore what would have happened if we had died 10 years ago or, or what would happen if we had continued to live. I think that's what makes this so hard for me. I think another reason this debate is so hard is because it reasonably is a conversation we may all need to have with our families and our doctors at some point, because I hate to break it to anybody, but we're all going to die. <laughs> um, and the decisions that we make towards the end of our life involve a lot of conversations already. And 
the fact that this is a possibility for people like myself to access means that this might be a part of my decision-making at the end of my life. So it's hard for me to really know what the right answer is when I'm hopefully pretty far removed from actually dying. But yeah, this is an abstract concept that actually is quite personal if you really think about it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that makes it difficult for sure. John, do you have any closing thoughts for us as well? As we, as we wrap things up here, I, I feel like, you know, we've kind of covered all our bases and looked at each of these scenarios, the arguments for and against it. And it doesn't feel like we've made much progress, but um, you know, how do you, how do you feel at the end of all this? I agree with everything Kelly said. Uh, and I would just add to it that like, you know, I do think on a fundamental level that you own your life and that nobody else can own that life. But I do think it's also important to consider that while you own your life, that you exist in relationship to other people and the way you use your life and the choices that you make about it are going to have effects on other people. And I, I think it is, I guess I'm going to say, I think it would be polite that if you are considering making decisions that would cause other people grief or trauma or post-traumatic stress, uh, or to just have an unhappy time for a while, uh, that you should probably be in conversations with those people and you should probably be in conversations with medical professionals. I, I think that the least responsible way that you can complete suicide is on your own uh, without any consultation whatsoever with the people that care about you. Uh, now, th that doesn't mean that you need to get you have to heed every opinion that you have to let other people tell you what to do. In fact, you probably ought not let other people tell you what to do. Uh, what you want, I think, is to get yourself into a support system of mutually, if it, this isn't possible for everyone, unfortunately, but in an ideal world, what you would do is you would find yourself some sort of mutually supportive group of people uh, that are willing to enter into conversations with you and mental health care professionals and healthcare professionals to make a decision that is responsible. And like, that is like, I think the key to all of this is that when you are dealing with suicidal ideation, either because you are terminally ill or because you have a mental health issue that is hard to treat or impossible to treat, that behaving responsibly is the most important thing you can do for yourself, for the people around you and for society. And so uh, don't make rash decisions, folks. Get help, like for real. It, you will not regret getting help. Yeah, absolutely. And I think now is probably an appropriate time to reshare the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Um, and once again, that number is one 800 273-8255. Um, if you feel as though you need help, please do not hesitate to call that number. If you are unsure if you need help, it, it can't hurt to call that number anyways. Um, it is better to talk to somebody than not. Um, until next time, take care of each other, take care of yourselves, 
And as always, thank you for listening.